0: Good morning, Emmaus. If you would, take your Bible and open to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, as we continue to study through that that book of the Bible. This morning, uh, as we get ready to study Scripture together, the opening sermon illustration is going to be a little different than maybe it is at other times. We want to have a time of prayer because of the importance of these things that we're going to pray about together this morning, uh, but also because this time of prayer will lead us into our study of Scripture together this morning. I want to give you a heads up as we start this morning. Next week, we go to our new schedule, which is actually our old schedule. So, starting next week, we're going to go back to one worship gathering at 1045. So, if you show up at 915 for this time of worship— we're going to send you to a Sunday school class and then invite you back at 1045 for, for our worship service. We're going back to that for the, for the summer and then see how that goes uh, moving ahead. So just a heads up, next week, 915 Sunday school, all Sunday school classes meeting then, 1045 worship service. And then next week as well, we'll resume our Sunday evening worship service at 5 o'clock. We won't have that tonight because of the holiday weekend, but next week... We'll have that. Also, a point of prayer as a church, Vacation Bible School is coming. <laughs> Summer's coming. We're excited about all that that means this year. We are passing out cards in neighborhoods. We're inviting people. If you know people in your neighborhood, if you know people around that would be interested in Vacation Bible School, invite them. Bring them on. We are excited about Vacation Bible School for, for the summer. So just a heads up that that comes June 7th through 11th. This morning as well, as we think about praying about Vacation Bible School and other things going on, Oklahoma Baptist churches, and and beyond just Baptist churches, churches around the state of Oklahoma have set aside this Sunday as well to pray about God's healing and reconciliation in our state related to the centennial of the Tulsa race massacre that happens tomorrow, and so churches around our state are gathering in prayer, praying for healing, praying for reconciliation, celebrating the good gift of diversity that God has given us, and praying that that healing would take place, no matter our background, no matter our color, no matter our ethnicity, whatever that might be, that we come together to pray for those things. And the way that God would work it out this morning is that we also have a chance to pray for some people in our church and related to our church who are involved in mission work around the world. And so I'm going to ask some of these folks to come on stage. If you guys will come up here right now. We have a chance to pray for a team with Crew. Uh Crew is an evangelistic and discipleship ministry that works on university campuses so come on up Miriam. Uh, many of you will know Miriam. She's been a part of our church for a long, 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 long time. Uh, and they have been serving in Russia. Uh, but because of some matters in Russia They're not renewing visas right now for anyone who is an international living there. So their team is having to come back here to the States and seek God's guidance about what would happen next. Part of that ministry connection as well is that for, let me get the names right here. I had this memorized a second ago, but for Tyler and Maddie and Audrey, uh, they have been living in a mission house that our church has been able to be a part of in Norman because of Trudy Middleton in a house that she had available and so our church has been able to come along and use as a mission house and this family has been able to uh, to use that and now they're going to go on staff with crew at OU is that how that's going to work so they're going to continue to be in in the Norman area doing that and then their friend Lilia who is Russian is going to be able to go back to her country and continue doing ministry there And then Kaylin jumped in this morning. She's a friend of all these people, uh, and she works with crew in Indianapolis. And so she's just here seeing friends, but we want to pray for her because of the ministry that that she does. And so the way that the Lord has worked this morning, where we're able to pray, thanking God for, for America, for our country, Memorial Day, and as Jack was able to do that, and the great gift that that is, realizing. That, that we're not perfect, that there is brokenness, there is healing that needs to happen in, in our state, and our nation and at the same time remembering God's at work around the world and his good purposes will continue to go forward and we're able to pray for these friends that are involved in missions and all of that is going to be very important as we look at the end of Daniel chapter 2 in just a minute. So I want to pray together as a church this morning and we're going to study scripture. Let's pray together right now. Father, at moments like this we are reminded of what good news it is that you are in control and and not us being in control father that we trust you we trust your character we trust your plans god that your purposes are good and perfect and wise and father we believe that you are at work around the world in go, ways that go beyond anything we could ever imagine and so god we pray that right here in our country god that we would be faithful to share the gospel to be people who do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with you. God, we pray for reconciliation in our state, and our world, among people from different backgrounds and ethnicities and skin colors. God, we thank you for those who have given their lives to share the gospel around the world. God, I pray for Miriam. God, we love her. We're so thankful for your work and her life. And God, even in this time of uncertainty moving forward, God, We believe together that you have incredible opportunities and plans for her in the days ahead. God, guide her by your spirit. Help her to know that she's loved and cared for. And God, we pray for these families who are making changes to plans and God, trusting you in that process. And God, thank you for a church like Emmaus that is committed to serving, to making uh, this missions home available, to supporting missionaries and praying for them around the world. And God, we pray that the gospel will continue to go forward in Russia in powerful ways, God, even in this time of uncertainty, that you would draw many people to the cross and to the good news of Jesus. And God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of Daniel chapter 2, and we saw the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had there at the beginning of Daniel chapter 2. And many of you have told me since then that you've been having some crazy dreams at home. I don't take any responsibility for that. If you've been having bad dreams at home, I don't know if that's the sermon doing its work. But right now, we get to see the end of that dream at the end of Daniel chapter 2. So let's start in verse 31. Figure out what this dream is all about that Daniel had there. It says in verse 31, You saw, O king, in your dream. Daniel's going to tell King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You saw, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Now, if you're working out of one of our Daniel journals, or you're making notes in your Bible... Make a note here in verse 31 that connects to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. We're going to come back to this again next week. But there's a connection happening here with this word image, where in Genesis chapter 1, we find that God created humans in his image, that God created people to be his image bearers in the world, to share his love and his glory and his power in the world. And when you find idols and statues and kings having dreams about statues, what you find is this example of idolatry. Instead of us being the image of God, we begin to make images out of worldly things. And so already with this dream, you find a subverting, a turning upside down of what's supposed to happen from Genesis chapter 1. So here the king is having a dream about this image. What do we find out about the image in verse 32? In verse 32, the head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle core and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, if you do like our family did this last week when we were reading this passage together, and you start to Google images of this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, You can find all kinds of images on the internet. And so I tried to pick one that was maybe the most simple of the ideas, uh, but you could imagine in your own mind what this dream might have been. This head, this single unit, this origin of fine gold, which is going to be very important when we get to Daniel chapter 3 and you find what Nebuchadnezzar does in Daniel 3. But he had this dream of this statue, this image with a head of gold. And then as you go down in the statue, what you find is each metal, each part of the statue decreases in worth, decreases in value, decreases in the density of the material that's used, but the material actually strengthens. So you go from gold all the way down to iron. But as you go down, you start to find that the stability of the statue is breaking down. You start to find the metals being mixed together. You start to find a separation. Even think about the idea of going from a single head to arms to legs to feet to ten toes. You find this division, this separation that's happening as you're going down this statue. Now, what's the big deal about this statue? Well, you're going to find as we go throughout Daniel that each element of the statue represents another kingdom, that is coming, another kingdom that is coming in the world. And so the way this interpretation is normally given, and there's a boatload of debate about how this actually works itself out, but the way this normally happens is the head, this gold head, is Babylon. And it matters that you have one statue flowing from this point because what it represents is all the kingdoms of the world that would follow the time of Israel being taken into exile. Because once Nebuchadnezzar takes over, once Babylon takes the people of God into exile, this holy land, this promised land, will not have a king over it until many centuries later. And even then, the Romans are going to come in and cause trouble. So this statue is introducing the time of the Gentiles, the time that God's promised land is not under the control of his people the way that he designed it to be, going all the way back to Saul and David. So there at the top, you have Babylon. Generally speaking, the next part of the statue is the Mede and the Persian Empire, the way that will normally be spelled is M-E-D-O-P-E-R-S-I-A-N, Medo-Persian. This combination of empires was the next set. Then usually the third kingdom is going to be associated with Greece. Alexander the Great, from all of your history classes that you remember, generally that third kingdom is going to be associated. This is where we start to get into the debate, and when we get later in Daniel, we'll talk about this some. But that's generally Greece. And then the fourth kingdom is where it really gets controversial. The most straightforward way to talk about the bottom of the statue in the fourth kingdom is to associate that with Rome, the Roman Empire that would come. But there's an element that I want you to catch of this fourth kingdom that begins with Rome but extends into the future. And we would say even until the return of Christ— this is the idea of the spiritual darkness in the world. This, the, the powers of this world living in what the New Testament called call this present evil age. So yeah, it does have to do with Rome, but it even extends beyond Rome into the future. So here's this statue that has been developed. What's going to happen with this statue? Well, verse 34. So, Keen, in your dream, as you looked at the statue, a stone was cut out. By no human hand. So this is happening off to the side. There's a stone that's cut out, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Now, if you look on the internet and you find an image of this, it'll often be a meteor like flying in from the side. I'm not sure that's the best, <laughs> the best image here. It's more of like a stone breaking off a mountain and rolling down the hill and and landing at the base of the statue is the way that I tend to think of it in my mind. Verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all the elements of of the statue were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. From the beginning of, of that verse... I want you to make a connection with another place in scripture that I think explains what's going on here. And your connection point is Psalm chapter 1. So if you're taking notes in your journal or making a note in your Bible, your, your connection point here is Psalm chapter 1 with what's happening with this statue. Psalm chapter 1 verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, And on the law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. So in your mind, in your mind, picture a tree, one of God's creations, planted by water, giving this fruit that is going to provide for all people around it. It's flourishing. This is a picture of this tree planted by water, flourishing. This is what God, even going back to Genesis 1, has created his people to do. Now, set another image in your mind of this statue that has been built, that's been established out in this plain, this arid plain that just sits there, made out of these earthly materials. What do you find happens next in Psalm chapter 1? You find that the wicked are not so. They're not like these trees of life. They're like chaff. Same connection that we saw in Daniel chapter two that's gonna happen when this rock strikes the statue. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What is happening when the rock comes down and strikes the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream? It's a sign of judgment on the wicked. Those who have turned away from the Lord, who have not acknowledged him as creator and God, who aren't flourishing like a tree planted by water, doing what God's created them to do, they're living for themselves, and this rock comes and brings judgment and ultimately wipes away those kingdoms. Now go back to Daniel chapter 2, verse 36. So Daniel tells the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, and then in verse 36 he says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. We'll tell you what it means. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Remember, one of our key words for the entire book of Daniel is the word give. That everything that we have is ultimately a gift from God. Everything that exists in the world comes from God's hands. He is sovereign and in perfect control over all of those things. And the imagery of this verse is all the imagery of Genesis chapter 1. That God has given all of the things in his creation under the dominion of his people that we're supposed to take care of the world. We're supposed to be over the things that God has created, not make idols out of them. And isn't this the danger we face in the world? We take good gifts from God and we turn them into idols. That God has given these things to us to be used for his glory, for his purposes, and too often we take those things and and use them as idols. And one of the things that stands out that, that can happen so easily is you take a good gift like patriotism that, that we talk about on Memorial Day or, or an Independence Day and we, we celebrate and we have thankfulness for those things and it gets turned into a God. One of the challenges as God's people is to treat his, to treat his gifts with gratitude and thankfulness and use for his glory and not to turn his gifts into God's. Not to turn his gifts into Into idols. And this is the challenge that we're seeing take place here in these verses. Verse 39 After your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, another kingdom, not as good as yours, inferior to you, shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And then in verse 40, And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And then in verse 43, as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. You see this imagery of mixture, which often in the Bible has to do with intermarriage between God's people and those who are not of God's people. It often speaks of idolatry or, or a lack of integrity and, and holiness before the Lord, Verse 44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. Here's the transition. All these kingdoms of the world that will be destroyed, God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. What do we find? It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the keen what shall be after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, even if you fight against God's plans, his plans are still going to go forward. And how often have we learned that in our own lives? No matter how hard you fight against God's plans, God's plans and purposes will still go forward. We can still trust him. He is still certain. He is still true. He is still trustworthy. Verse 46, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. Daniel must have been thinking, oh my word. (laughs) No, don't, don't offer an offering to me. Offer an offering to the one true God, the one who is sovereign over all these things. What does Nebuchadnezzar do in verse 47? The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. As we go through the next couple of chapters, you're going to find Nebuchadnezzar struggling so badly to consider Daniel's God to be his own God. You probably have people in your life who, they don't have a particular problem that you believe in, follow Jesus or that you believe in God and they don't, but that's your God, not their God. Like, sure, that, that, you believe that, that's totally fine. If you believe that, you go after that, but that's not my God. Nebuchadnezzar here is confronted with God's power and yet it's still Daniel's God. It's not, he's not the God over his own life, over his own kingdom. Verse 48. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts. You even find Nebuchadnezzar trying to act like God in this situation and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. And that will ultimately lead us into the story for next week where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find themselves in, in the fiery furnace. What's going on in this dream at the end of Daniel 2? Very, very clearly, you find two different types of kingdoms that you can give your life to. Well, by life, be given for the kingdoms of this world, or will my life be lived for the kingdom of God? What do we find out in these verses about the kingdoms of this world? Well first, we find out that every kingdom of this world is ultimately dependent on God. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. You take any government on earth, you take any person on earth that has any type of power, the only reason they have that power is because God has made it possible. He has given it to them. He is perfectly in control. There is no person and no government on earth that operates independent of God's sovereign wisdom and power. He is perfectly in control of all things. The second thing we find out about worldly kingdoms is that they are temporary. Another kingdom— Inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third, and then there shall be a fourth. Every kingdom on earth that would set itself up and say, we will ultimately be the ruler of the world. We will never be defeated. You know what God's word says about that? Not true. Not true at all. Every government is an interim government. Every person in power has temporary power. We are dust, and to dust we will return and God will remain sovereign. He will remain in control. Third, the kingdoms of this world are what we're going to call degressive. <laughs> uh, we like to think of things just getting better and better and better. In this interpretation of history, things don't get better and better and better. They actually go from good to worse. Another kingdom inferior to you, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the fourth. The fourth will be mixed iron and clay. We look to politics sometimes, or we look to worldly governments to move us ahead so things will get better, so things will progress in the right direction, and yet we find that the governments of the world, the kingdoms of the world, don't actually take us in that direction because that's a direction that only God's spirit, only God's power can take us. Now, we want government to do that. We desire that. We even work for that in a republic like we live as part of, but what you find in God's word is That's simply not the progression of history, that we find his people, his creation, getting further and further from him, spiraling out of control, and and to a certain degree, we even understand a little bit about what it looks looks like to live through that chaos, and when you feel like things are spiraling out of control and getting worse, there's an element of that that just says, yeah, that's scripture, that's God's word, and he's in control. He is absolutely in control. The fourth thing we find out about kingdoms of this world is they are divisive. Beyond that head of gold, as you go down, even the statue itself is made of multiple materials. You get down and you find this iron that is mixed with clay. Empires in the world, kingdoms of this world, want to build power through uniformity, bringing everybody together under their rule, under their power, and even when that happens, you find division. We know what division in politics looks like. <laughs> we, we understand that perfectly. Human governments will always be handcuffed by the reality of division. That in the kingdom of this world, there will be division and will never allow those kingdoms to progress where you might go otherwise. And finally, number five, kingdoms of this world have a desire to dominate. A desire to for power, desire to bring a quick fix. Which politician and which government has not promised a quick fix to all of these huge problems that we face in the world that ultimately need God's solution, needs God's love, needs long-term discipleship? Don't The problems we face in the world aren't going to be fixed by a human government that promises a short-term solution because the problems we face in the world are related to sin and death. And only Jesus has the power to defeat sin and death through the cross and the resurrection. So let me ask you a question. Why would we live our lives ultimately for that type of human kingdom? Why would we give ourselves to that type of human kingdom when there's another option? There's the kingdom of God that he would establish. The kingdom of God is supernatural. This stone that's cut out of the mountain is cut out by, by no human hand. This is not the type of work that any person could do. When, when I was talking this week uh, to my kids about this passage, and we were talking about it, and they were giving me some ideas for, for this morning, one of my kids said, hey, that rock that is cut out and is going to be used to destroy the, the statue, is there a possible connection there with the David and Goliath story? You know, I never thought about that, but the more I think about it, I actually think there is. When you think about God using a small rock to defeat a giant, and when we read that David and Goliath story, Goliath is a picture of empire. Goliath is a picture, a symbol of worldly kingdoms, and here this small stone is used to take down this large giant that's meant to symbolize the empires of the world— I think you can draw a really sharp connection, uh, if, if not a sharp connection, at least a really bold dotted line between Daniel chapter two and the story of David and Goliath going here that God's kingdom is set up by supernatural means. The second thing we know about God's kingdom is God's kingdom is eternal. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And the third thing we know about God's kingdom is that God's kingdom is universal. It covers the whole earth, it covers the whole world. Now when you think about a kingdom that is supernatural, eternal, and universal, who is able to establish that kingdom? Who could bring a kingdom like that? I don't know how you read this story and don't run straight to Jesus. What the New Testament tells us about the work of Jesus. Mark chapter one, verses 14 to 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What happens with the coming of Jesus? The way I understand scripture is here's this rock that God is establishing that his kingdom is going to be built on. That Jesus comes and says the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's at this point, and as we try to work our way through some of those ending chapters of Daniel that are pretty complicated and have a lot of uh, debate around them, here's a reality we need to keep in mind over the next few weeks. And I've said it, if I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times. It's that already not yet element to God's kingdom. Because you can think about Jesus coming and saying the kingdom of God is at hand. And he comes and he brings God's kingdom right into the middle of the Roman Empire. But do worldly kingdoms still try to set themselves up? Absolutely they do. Do we still live in a world where sin and death and pain and brokenness exist? Absolutely we do. Did Jesus' mission fail? Not a chance. That he will return to make all things right. We live in the midst of God's kingdom being already victorious Even though we have not yet seen all that that's going to mean when every kingdom of this world is destroyed, when all sin and death is taken out of this world. And so as we read Daniel and we think about the coming of God's kingdom, we have to hold on to that already, not yet. God, already you have saved me. You have changed my life. And yet, I have to admit, most days I'm a mess. (laughs) Not yet have I seen everything that that holiness is going to mean to my life, but you continue to bring that transformation. You continue to set up your kingdom in my heart in new ways every day. So we find here that the kingdom of God is absolutely at hand, that it came with Jesus. What else do we find Jesus saying about his kingdom? John chapter 18. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus didn't come to establish a kingdom based on military power or government strategy. He came bringing the gospel of God. He said, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And then think about that rock imagery again. Luke chapter 20, verse 17. What is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So Jesus is drawing on this imagery from the book of Psalms about this stone that was rejected, wasn't seen valuable enough to be used in the building process, but it actually becomes the cornerstone for all of God's work. What does he say about that in the very next verse? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when that stone falls on anyone, it will crush him. Do you see the connection between Daniel chapter two and that stone that rolled down and destroyed that statue, and what Jesus says about his ministry, that when he comes, he will absolutely bring judgment against those who are opposed to the way of God. What does that mean for us as the people of God? Well, you fast forward in your New Testament to a place like 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to Jesus, who is a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, You yourselves, as the people of God, as those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. A spiritual house there means a house full of the Holy Spirit. A a, a house that is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. A tree planted by water that's able to bear fruit because of God's work in our life. So who are we as the people of God? We are those who trust in Jesus to bring God's kingdom in a way that only he can bring. Trust in Jesus to bring salvation in a way that only he can bring it. And so we don't put our trust in horses or chariots. We put our trust in the Spirit of God to bring salvation. And in that process, he raises us up to be his people, to be living stones who are able to do the work of God's kingdom. So when you think about living in God's kingdom, here's what I want you to think about. There there are two elements to living in God's kingdom. One is you worship with hope for the future. How do we live in a world with so much broken power? How do we live in a world with so many broken governments? How do we live in a world where things oftentimes seem chaotic and out of control? We live with deep hope. That God is absolutely sovereign and in control. That his plans are perfect and he will bring salvation. And we say, God, I want to trust in you. I don't want to lay up my treasures on earth. I don't want to live for the things of this world. I want to trust. I want to put my faith in Jesus. And let me just say this morning, if you're watching online, if you're here in the room, do not live your your life seeking the success of the world. Seeking stability in the things of the world. Put your faith in Jesus. He's defeated sin. He's defeated death. And he provides a life that is not only full of hope now, but eternal life. Trust in him. Be a part of God's kingdom. If you never trusted in Jesus before, that you would do that. That we worship. We are people who have great hope for the future. But we also live faithfully today. With everything we talked about this morning, you could hear something like this and think that the implication is that we didn't just step back from the world. Like we live passive lives. We, we're not involved in things that are happening in the world. In fact, it's the opposite. Because we're not ultimately living for the things of this world, our hope is ultimately in God. He has called us to be part of his work here. In this world. Seeing his kingdom built. That we would be people who do great work. Kingdom work. Whatever God has called you to do in your vocation, whatever God gives you to do with your hands during the week, do it in a way that shows the fruit of the Spirit. Do your work well and fused with the power and the reality of God's kingdom. Let God's kingdom show up in the way you live your life. And when you speak, speak as those who have good news. We live in a world where most of the speech that happens and most of the news that goes out is not very good. It's not very hopeful, it's not very optimistic. There's not a lot of good news wrapped up in it. But as the people of God, our very message is good news. Good news for those who trust in him. Good news for those who don't live for the kingdom of this world, but for the kingdom of God. Let's be good news people. Let's be people who speak about the hope that is found in Jesus. Wherever you find yourself, whatever you're going through in life, Remember, God is good, he's loving, he is in control, and we can trust him for all of eternity. Let's pray together. We're going to sing a final song. Fathers, we think about the complexity of a day like today. We think about uh, growing in spiritual maturity, and, and part of that growth in spiritual maturity is that we're able to recognize those good gifts that you give us, God, that, that we gather today on Memorial Day weekend thankful for those who serve, thankful for the gift. So many good gifts that come as a result of, of living in this country and even existing as a church in this country. But we also come as those who don't want to make that an idol. We come as those who don't put our hope in a worldly kingdom or government. God, we want to live as part of your kingdom. And God, we need your help to know how to do that in this world. That we put our trust in you, and we pray, God, that you would build your kingdom here. That you would use us as those who set our lives on the rock of Jesus. That we would be built up as living stones, God. That we would be a part of the work that you're doing in this world. God, whether that work is in Russia, whether that work is in Colombia, whether that work is in Canada, whether that work is right here in Oklahoma in the United States, God, that we would see you build your kingdom, and God, that you would use us in that process as we trust in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>